0: Screen Jewel podcast, our last one before Christmas, and uh, a few bits and pieces to talk about. We've got uh, first up, we've got Soul dropping on Disney Plus on Christmas Day. Then we have a bit of a chat about uh, the Mandalorian season two finale, no spoilers, we promise. Then Ma Randy's Black Bottom on Netflix. Uh, Then an interesting documentary about The Sopranos. Uh, Tenet, the uh, Christopher Nolan film that's made its way to Blu ray, and uh, three films. Fighting it out for worst film of the year. We've got Paintball Massacre, Come Away and Buddy Games. But first up, Soul, which I haven't seen but Tom has. It's directed by uh, Pete Doctor and stars the voices of Jamie Foxx, Tina Fey, Felicia Rashad, and Angela Bassett. I'll be watching this on Christmas Day on uh, Disney+. Plus. Uh, you also wrote the review for us for Screen Jobber Tom. Uh, you quite liked it, with a few reservations.
1: Yeah, I think that sums it up uh, quite nicely. Uh, obviously, a Pixar film is always something to get excited about. Um, in fact, one of the last films I saw in a cinema before the first lockdown um, was Onward, the um, the previous Pixar film, which I very much enjoyed. Um, this one comes with an extra dose of excitement because in the director's chair, as you said, is Pete Docter, um, you know, the man responsible for Monsters, Inc. and Up and, of course, Inside Out. Um So you expect him to to give you the sort of more cerebral end of Pixar. And that is indeed what he tries to do. So you've got Jamie Foxx playing uh, Joe Gardner, who is a jazz pianist and a part-time music teacher. Um, He really wants to be a jazz performer. He gets an opportunity to do that. um, But on the same day, he has his audition, which goes really well. He falls down a manhole um, and his soul becomes separated from his body as he kind of tries to pass to the other side. But he does not want to. He's got this opportunity. He's not ready to die yet. And so his soul tries to escape and ends up in the great before rather than the great beyond um, where there are lots of um, young souls who are being readied by various mentors to uh, go and become human beings. Uh, And he's mistaken for one of these mentors and is tasked with mentoring number 22 voiced by Tina Fey who is a troublesome soul who is trying to basically avoid going down to earth. Um, so from that backdrop, they, and that's a lot of plot but that's pretty much the, you know, most of that happens before the title card. Um, so there's quite a lot going on. Um, it's quite intelligent. It's really well written. I think the script by, um, by Pete Dr. Kemp powers um, and uh, names blanking me, Mike Jones. Um, it's a, uh, it's a really intelligent script really well written and it's got a lot to say and so that's kind of what you expect from doctor uh obviously it comes with the trademark pixar warmth the trademark pixar heart but the thing that i struggled with is that some of its ideas don't feel like they were quite pushed as far as they could go you look at a film like inside out and everything that happens in inside out every idea it has is taken all the way to its logical conclusion it's taken as far as it can go And with Soul, you sort of feel like some of the ideas are a little bit half-baked. Like there's this whole idea that the last ingredient for a soul before they go to Earth is their spark, which is sort of the thing that drives them as a human. Um, And there's a whole thing about whether we conflate spark with purpose, which is a really interesting idea, but it's one that's not quite teased out in in the way you want it to be. Um, A lot of the film takes place uh, in in this strange sort of... um, body swap situation uh which plays out a bit strangely and sort of undercuts the triumph of having um you know your first uh you know what a pixar film with a with a person of color leading it uh there's a bit of a trope of uh uh, people of color leads being transplanted into animals and things like that which kind of it, it sort of undercuts it a little bit um but it's pixar it's peak doctor it works it's warm it's funny by the end there were you know tears were shed as you would expect uh and i think overall it works So it might not be peak pixar it's certainly not peak peak doctor but as a kind of blockbuster to end the year i think it's a really solid piece of work yeah
0: as i said i'll definitely be watching that on uh, christmas day and even lesser pixar films are still good films
1: exactly exactly
0: yeah, sticking with Disney+, Plus, uh, The Mandalorian has just had its Season 2 finale, with quite a major surprise, which we are not going to spoil. Um, avoid the internet before watching it if you don't want to spoil, because there are people everywhere talking about this finale, but what a finale it was. It's been two very, very good seasons of The Mandalorian so far, telling the exploits of uh, Din Jarin, aka Mando, the Mandalorian of the title, played by Pedro Pascal. Played very well, it must be said. Uh, uh, he's a lone bounty hunter on a task to uh, deliver a child uh, who, for much of the first season, we were calling Baby Yoda, but in the second season, they revealed his name as uh, Grogu, and um, he has deliver him to, uh, well, to his own people, and uh, he's a Jedi. But uh, it's good; it's a good finale. Uh, a lot of the. Uh, other characters have popped up throughout Seasons 1 and 2 uh, Return. Moff Gideon is back, played by Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, Boba Fett turns up. Timaru Morrison. Uh, Mignal Wynn is fantastic as Fennec Shand. Uh, Gina Carano as Cara Dune. And Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan Cries. But, uh, yeah, it's very much Mando's show. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes in Season 3. One thing, one thing that does leave me a little bit puzzled is there's a lot of tie-ins with... Um, some of the animated series they've had and some characters coming over from the animated series of star wars which i've never really watched so i'm probably a little bit lost as to who's who but i find that they do give enough information to uh to get by what about uh you Tom? did you enjoy it
1: Oh, I loved it. I think I said earlier, uh, I think we talked about it briefly earlier in the season. And I just thought, you know, I liked season one of the Mandalorian, but this one has just taken it to a whole new level. I found myself, you know, it's appointment viewing every Friday in a way that we don't really have appointment viewing anymore. Um, You know, I'd find myself on my lunch break from work on a Friday, fitting it in and making sure I'd watched it because, you know, you didn't want the internet to spoil what was, what was happening this week. Um, and it's just a joy. It made me giddy. I loved being watching a Star Wars thing again, because it was so easy to fall out of love after um, The Rise of Skywalker, which was a kind of a disaster. Um, and so to have something like Mandalorian, where I was just so excited to be in the galaxy far, far away every week. And you're right, there are kind of nods to the animated shows. And, but I do think, as you said, I think it gives you enough information that you're never kind of overwhelmed by that. Um, I've started watching the animated shows, but I'm not very far through at all. Um, but I think within its kind of self-contained world, it works well. When it nods to the wider Star Wars, it works well as well. Obviously, we had the Disney investor call last week where they announced like five or six or seven or seven thousand new Star <laughs> Wars shows. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of them will be good. I'm sure some of them won't be as good. Um, But The Mandalorian kind of feels like it's been a sort of backdoor pilot for all of those shows. And it has shown that there's a real home for Star Wars on the small screen. In people like Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni, they've got people who can shepherd this stuff. Um, The direction in this series has been great. You know, people like Rick Famuyiwa, who directed some of the last season. Um, Peyton Reed of Ant-Man fame. Uh, directed the finale and did a fabulous job it's a proper kind of prison escape movie almost that finale um and as you said it has that killer surprise towards the end which is incredible um i i think i've just loved every minute of this second season so yeah i hope it's going from strength to strength and, and and i hope that the star wars small screen universe continues to do so
0: Yeah. Uh, If you haven't watched it yet, do also watch through the final credits because there is a teaser scene at the end uh, hinting towards. uh, Well, it's been announced there is going to be a Boba Fett series and that's what it's uh, teasing.
1: Yes, which I confess I'm, I'm a little concerned about because so when Disney acquired Lucasfilm, one of the first projects they announced was a movie about Boba Fett. Um, James Mangold who did Logan was on board to uh, t- to write and direct it and then when they started moving forward with The Mandalorian they kind of quietly cancelled the Boba Fett movie um, and obviously Boba Fett is such a cult hero for Star Wars fans You know, his screen time in the actual movies is very small um, but he has this kind of outsized reputation probably just because he looks cool as an action figure <laughs> I think that's what drives a lot of it Um, And so when I heard that he was going to be in season two of the Mandalorian, I was a little bit kind of worried because I'd never really got him as a character. But thanks to this show and thanks to Tamara Morrison, um, I have uh, really enjoyed him in the Mandalorian. My concern is that I'm not sure I want to see him as a main character in a show. That's my concern. And so, you know, I'll absolutely watch uh, the book of Boba Fett, as they're calling it. But whether I will enjoy it as much as the Mandalorian remains to be seen.
0: Yeah. Although, I mean, the beauty of these TV shows is you're not forced to watch them. You know, if if they don't uh, float your boat, you can uh, quite happily ignore them. Yes. Yeah. let's uh, jump now from Disney Plus over to Netflix uh, Netflix is having a very good year this year just about every week they've got a big release and this week's big release is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom uh, it's based on the true life story of the legendary blues singer Ma Rainey played here by Viola Davis looking unrecognisable to be honest she does not look like Viola Davis at all it's directed by Joel Wolf, and it's based on the play by uh, August Wilson and it does feel very stagey and theatrical it also stars Chadwick Bowman as uh, Levy Green who's a trumpeter in band and it basically it all the whole story takes place pretty much in one day in a recording session that uh, Ma Rainey's having with her band and it's a it's a fabulous watch she's a very powerful character and it's really you know that the, the, the whole crux of the film is about um, you know black singers taking back control of uh, of their music. Uh, from the white people but I had a really really good time watching this and a, a lovely lovely final performance from Chadwick Boseman you know it really shows to be what the sort what sort of actor he was turning uh turning into although I've got to say he did look uh, he did look a bit thin thinner than we've seen him before in this role as you can see he wasn't uh he wasn't too well sadly but a uh, fabulous film did you enjoy it Tom um
1: I loved it I think we can we can probably start engraving Chadwick Boseman's name on the Oscar now <laughs> um I, I yeah i thought this film was exceptional um I, I i sort of went into it expecting a good chadwick boseman performance and obviously a good uh viola davis performance um obviously this is part of this kind of long-running project to um uh, adapt august wilson's plays for the screen uh, denzel washington shepherding it uh, he obviously uh made fences a few years ago which he also starred in he's a producer on this one um and it's, I think it's a wonderful piece of work. I think the tragic thing in, in so many ways is how alive Chadwick Boseman feels in this role. It's just, its a performance of such vitality and such energy. You know, the way that, because this is a guy who, uh, this trumpeter, Levy, in, in his mind, he's got the world at his feet and he's got this, you know, big career ahead of him. And its it, he sort of brims with enthusiasm and vigor and in, in a lot of cases, delusions of grandeur. And and it's such a a, a, an alive and powerful performance from from Chadwick Boseman, and then as you said, Viola Davis is unrecognisable, absolutely as as Ma Rainey, and she has such such power and such an aura about her, which is so brilliantly done, and
0: so much self confidence. You know, she knows exactly what her worth is to the record company, and she won't let them forget it.
1: Hundred percent, and and you know, the dialogue is fantastic. Um, uh, the uh, Ruben Santiago Hudson done a fantastic job of uh, adapting that August Wilson uh, dialogue and so it crackles you know there's as you said it's quite stagey a lot of the scenes are set in the the band's kind of rehearsal room uh, but they have such energy they, they they really crackle and you know the, the, the supporting cast are absolutely great I, I really found myself uh, enjoying this I sort of when you, you hear about the project, you know, it's an August Wilson adaptation, it's, you know, prestige, it's glossy, it's got all these actors in. I You know, I was like, oh, it's going to be two hours and 20 minutes then. And it's 90 minutes. And it just keeps up such energy throughout those 90 minutes. And I, I thought it was such a short, sharp blast of, 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 of genius, really. I think it compares really well to um, One Night in Miami, the Regina King film that played at LFF, and I think he's getting... Um, it's UK release early next year. Um, cause they're both about, uh, appropriation of, uh, of the civil rights cause and about the, uh, and of black experience by white people for commercial gain. Um, and I think that's such a, such a compelling, uh, force at the center of this film. Um, and, uh, the story doesn't go where you expect. There are some real savage twists in the tale at the end, more than one, in fact. um, and yeah, I just thought it was stunning. To be honest with you, I can definitely see myself watching it again. I was expecting it to be good, but I think I was just sideswiped by quite how brilliant it is.
0: Yeah, I did watch this on my uh, iPad, uh, but I will gonna watch it. I am definitely gonna definitely watch it on the uh, the big screen TV. It's worth a rewatch for sure, as you say. Next up, an interesting little uh, semi documentary. It's a little three part film made up of sort of three short films called The Sopranos Sessions. It runs for about two and a half hours. It's uh it's streaming, it's available in the uh UK, Europe, uh, and Australia. Not yet in the US. It's going to be on one night on December the twenty seventh. Uh, the details uh, are there on the uh, the website with a link to uh, where you can uh, sign up to watch it. But it's uh, it's three conversations about the TV series The Sopranos, which is acknowledged by many people as probably the greatest TV series ever made. It ran on HBO, began in ninety nine, and ran till the mid. Seven or eight series, depending on uh, which chronology you follow. And that's one of the things that's discussed in the documentary. But it's sort of based around three conversations. The first is called My Dinner with Alan, uh, A Soprano Session. Uh, so on the eve of the publication of their book, The Soprano Sessions, TV critics Alan Seppenwall and Matt Solisites, who used to write for the Star Ledger of Newark, which is the newspaper Tony Soprano used to pick up, uh, at the end of his driveway, in many episodes of The uh, Sopranos. So they wrote about the TV show, they, they did blog posts, they did, you know, a story recap. They interviewed all the cast and creator over the years. Uh, but they get together for a, um, for a dinner at Halston's, uh, in Bloomfield, New Jersey, which was the location of the very, very final scene of The Sopranos, which, Tom, you may have heard about. I know you haven't watched The Sopranos, but you've heard about this classic final scene where it ends in such an abrupt manner. And there's been yes, a lot of... I haven't.
1: I, I, I have in fact, seen the final scene of *The Sopranos*.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, they did. They discussed that final scene, and uh, a theory that I subscribe to is is discussed. But their their conversation, you know, covers television, movies, psychiatry, gangsterism, their twenty year friendship working on the paper, and their experience in covering the series for the newspaper over the years. So, but it's very interesting they did it at that location. So they're they're there having having food and drink and a chat, and that, that's quite interesting. The second one is called uh, The Last Supper, a soprano session. Uh, so it's a dinner with four key members of the cast of the show uh, who reminisce about their the time on the show. And it's filmed in the Little Italy restaurant El Cortil, where cast members would go for a commiseration dinner after their character had been killed off in the show. And as you'd imagine, a lot of characters died over the seven or eight seasons of The Sopranos. Uh, so the four we've got are for me three of them were almost unrecognizable we were we, you know almost 20 years after the Sopranos, so they have all aged the only one who looked very much the same was vincent pastora Pastore, who played big pussy in the sopranos but uh frederico castelluccio who played furio um arthur nascarella who was uh carlo Gervasi, and uh vincent Curitola, who was Johnny Sacrimoni. And they sit around and having a four-course dinner at this restaurant and discuss their time on the show and their dealings with creator David Chase and their dealings with other cast members and, you know, how they found James Gandolfini. And they had all, everyone had very warm memories of James Gandolfini, of course, with the star of the show is Tony Soprano. Uh, and the third one is um, called David Chase, A Soprano Session. And it's... Um, it's Matt and Alan sitting down and having a chat with David Chass. And I found this one probably the least interesting of the month. David doesn't tend to give away, but he talks a bit about the show. He talks about his childhood memories of Newark and, you know, where the idea for The Sopranos came from, his vision behind the show. And a little bit about the um, cinema release of The Many Saints of Newark, which is a prequel for the series, which is coming out in March 2021. But yeah, it's two and a half hours of very interesting conversations about The Sopranos. Uh, unfortunately, you don't really they don't have any clips from the show, they don't show any photos of any of the cast members from the time, so I would have liked a bit of that. But the conversations themselves are interesting. And what I found probably the most engrossing was The Last Supper, with the four cast members talking about. They probably mentioned some, sort of, some of the things they shouldn't really talk about. But if you're able to catch that on the 27th of December and you're a massive Sopranos fan, very much worth a look. Uh, moving on now to Tenant, which has just had a very, very quietly slipped out by Warner Brothers Blu-ray release, with uh, virtually no marketing or advertising or uh, publicity at all, which is a bit surprising. I missed this theatrically because of uh, lockdown, etc. But having watched it on uh, Blu-ray, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I did watch it with the subtitles on, having heard there were some pieces of dialogue that were very hard to hear. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan. It's a, it's a real mind-bending film. It's, uh, it's a bit. plays out a bit like a James Bond film with, with a sci-fi element. Uh, John David Washington stars as the protagonist. He's not actually given a name throughout the film, he's just known as the protagonist. He's a CIA agent trying to track down uh, some time meddling that's going on um, by Kenneth Branagh who plays Andrei Sator, a Russian oligarch who's uh, in communication with the future. Uh, Robert Pattinson stars as Neil who's the protagonist's handler Elizabeth Debicki is uh Catherine Barton who's the wife of uh Sator. um thoroughly enjoyable as as a as a James Bond style film it works really really well the, the it's fast paced the action is terrific the the time bending stuff where you know some characters are moving forward in time and some are backwards it it takes take a lot of concentration it's probably going to take another watch for me to really get my head around but i found it hugely entertaining fascinating great performances and and just a fascinating film with with some big ideas that i don't think everything in it works but, you know, Christopher Nolan, he's a bold and visionary filmmaker and he's, you know, he's always attempting to do interesting things. I know we talked about it for his theatrical release, but uh, yeah, remind us again what your thoughts on it were, Tom.
1: Yeah, as I think I said at the time, um, I, I, I really enjoyed this, but I don't understand it. Um, I think, I think, as as you said, I think now that the um, now that the blu Ray's out, I think a rewatch with subtitles is very much the order of the day um i was very fortunate to see it on a massive IMAX screen um and it really benefited i think i wrote in my review at the time that it was like being punched in the face by cinema itself um and and on that level it absolutely works i mean as much as as you said the plot doesn't all work when it goes for spectacle the spectacle is phenomenal you know the in the trailer you glimpse the, the 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 plane crashing into a building which is just exceptional um There's this car chase where some of the cars are inverted and they're somersaulting and flying about. It's fantastic. Um, I I wasn't so keen on the uh, big final set piece, which basically just looks like lots of people in military fatigues running around shooting at each other. And they're they're wearing coloured tags so you can keep up with who they are, but I couldn't follow it at all. (laughs) It was just lots of identically dressed people shooting at each other. So... Um, given the invention of some of the other set pieces, I was a bit disappointed by the, the, the finale. Um, but I, did, I think it was loads of fun. Um, and, and, you know, a lot was made at the time. I think almost every review, including my own, uh, quoted the line that Clements Poesy's character says near the beginning, where she explains the concept of time inversion and then says, don't try to understand it, just feel it. And I think a lot of people, as I said, myself included, mention that in reviews because that's sort of the best way to approach the film. Because if you try to understand it, you, you might get there, but it's difficult. Whereas if you just sort of relax into it, let it wash over you and just feel what it's doing, I think that's where it operates best. And I think the reason that's allowed to happen is because, as audiences, we have so much faith in Christopher Nolan. I think we go, I don't understand it, but I bet Christopher Nolan does. And I think that allows you to, to trust in the storyteller. And so you can not try to understand it, but just feel it. That's what I did. And I had a, a great time with it.
0: Oh, it's thoroughly entertaining, even if it is sometimes confusing. Uh, but yeah, it, it is an absolute spectacle. It does make you wonder what Christopher Nolan could do if he got his hands on a James Bond film. I think he'd do a bloody good job. Uh, Being a Blu-ray, there is uh, extras. The the Blu-ray comes with a second disc, which is the Features disc. Sadly, there's no Director's Commentary, which uh, would be quite nice. Maybe one will come along one day. Uh, But the bonus disc has a 76-minute making of called Looking at the World in a New Way, which is split into 13 mini-featurettes each running around five minutes. Uh, But it covers the casting, the story structure and continuity, set design and cinematography, the locations and costumes, music and all of the key set pieces. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but I plan to, to see if it does explain a bit about what's going on. One of the things I loved about the film was the locations. Uh, There's some lovely scenes in Italy, uh, one set in Ravello uh, on the Amalfi Coast, and the other um, off the actual town of uh, Amalfi itself. I mean, often when you see the Amalfi Coast, they show... You know, uh, other towns like Positano, which are a bit more famous, but I, I spent a lovely week in Amalfi once, and seeing Amalfi on, on film was just gorgeous, one of my favourite places in the world. So uh, that's tenant, very much worth a look, but uh, yeah, just let it sit there and enjoy it and let it wash over you. Right, on to the final three films to talk about. And as I said at the top of the show, three films vying for the worst film of the year title. First up, we've got Paintball Massacre. Uh, One for you, Tom, as you've seen it and I have not, but stars Katie Brand.
1: Uh, Yes, that's just about the only thing it's got going for (laughs) it. So it's this this really muddled um, British horror thriller. Um, So it's set at a school reunion... All these people who went to school together meeting up. They've kind of fallen out of touch, mostly. It seems like they don't really like each other. It seems like they didn't like each other much at school. Um, but they've met up. They're having a, a, a boozy reunion. And then the next day, they're all going paintballing together. Um, and they're on one team and a group of strangers are on the other team. Uh, so that they're doing the paintball. And then one game goes a bit quiet. And they discover that the entirety of the other team has been violently butchered. By an unseen um unseen assailant uh, and then uh, it transpires that the assailant's real target is their reunion um and they're picked off one by one as you might expect from a sort of slasher of this ilk um i actually found some of it quite watchable I think once the, the violence initially starts and there's a bit of intrigue to it, I think it's actually quite well told. You know, it's a massively low-budget film and it shows because the visual effects are really, really poor um, throughout, in fact. Um, there are some interesting wrinkles to the central mystery, which I thought were, were, were quite good. Um, but ele- elements of it are just overwritten beyond belief, Um, and it is eventually very contrived Uh, you've got this big big ensemble cast a massive array of characters so many characters it's like Game of Thrones there's so many characters (laughs) and it's impossible to keep up with them all Um, but I think you know some of the performances are are, are decent uh, I think Uh, Cheryl Burniston plays the the central character who's kind of reluctantly involved in the paintballing and she's pretty good and then uh, uh, Aoife Smith is really good. Her character has this habit of explaining major life events as if they're Fast and Furious movies and that's quite a good running gag throughout the movie but other than those bright spots I think it's just clunky it's messy it doesn't make the most of its ingredients there's particularly there's a brexit joke in there which just lands with such a clunk Um it, it has the problem that so many br- particularly british horror movies do where it sits in this really awkward hinterland between horror and comedy um, obviously we have Shaun of the dead which is kind of the best example of that genre ever um, and so i think a lot of british horrors reach for that horror comedy hybrid and it just doesn't work. So, you know, while I wasn't necessarily upset by the movie, uh, I can't say I enjoyed it very much.
0: All right, next up, we've got Come Away, a new fantasy adventure uh, directed by Brenda Chapman and uh, based on Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Peter Pan starring Angelina Jolie and Gugu and raw uh, I believe this is uh, not much chop either.
1: It's, it's interesting, this. The alarm bells start to ring, I think. Um, so it's, it's as you said, directed by Brenda Chapman, who is a Pixar stalwart. Um, it stars Angelina Jolie, you know, the A-lister of A-listers. David Oyelowo, another A-lister. It's based on fairy tales, but it's been very, very quietly released <laughs> from a fairly small distributor <laughs> with very little marketing in the middle of a pandemic. So if you were thinking maybe it's not that good, you'd be right. Um, so the, the, the conceit is that Peter not yet pan and Alice not yet in wonderland are siblings. Um, they spend their days playing games of like make believe, uh, their parents are Angelina Jolie and, and, and David Oyelowo. Um, a tragedy happens in the family and suddenly they're all for some reason involved in the London underworld, uh, Presided over by the Mad Hatter, who's played by Clark Peters, and uh Captain James Not Yet Hook, um who's played by uh, David yarsi Um it's a mess. It's such a mess, and it's most sadly of all, it's a boring mess. Um you've got so many tones fighting for attention um but somehow none of them give it any texture or any energy, or any vigour, or any creativity. It feels, you know, desperately incoherent. You know, as, as you may have gathered from the, the plot summary I gave there, the fairy tale illusions are just thrown in seemingly at random. There's no rhyme or reason to... They, like, they don't play into the way the story's told, really. They're just sort of there. It's got no visual life either. It's all gloomy and Dickensian rather than kind of, you know, bursting with, with magic and sparkle like you want it to be. They keep talking about magic and about imagination and about joy, but there's none of that in the film visually or kind of narratively. Narratively, it's really quite dour and depressing and sad. You know, the, uh, but there's no there's no, like, heart. There's no heart. I think that's the key. It's all very cold and very clinical and it it flirts with these themes and then Michael Caine turns up with a weird fake mustache it's all just all over the shop and lacking in creativity and imagination it feels like just an attempt to throw some well-known characters together cast some big names and hope for the best I think the thing that sums it all up um at one point Angelina Jolie gives the Alice character a um a small bell which has been made by a local tinker and they refer to it as tinker's bell. (laughs) And at, at that point you put your head in your hands and you go, Oh, it's this movie. And it never gets any better than that.
0: Oh dear. Yes. And finally we've got a film called Buddy Games, another one that's been snuck out on uh, VOD with uh, very little fanfare. Uh, it's directed by Josh Duhamel, and stars him as well, and it's written by Duhamel, Bob Schwartz and Jude Wang. and it's about a bunch of uh, friends. Um, also stars uh, James Rodriguez, Kevin Dillon, who you remember from Entourage, uh, Dax Shepard and uh, Nick Swardson, uh, six lifelong friends who get together every now and then and every year they get together for buddy games it's an insane competition filled with uh, physical and mental challenges i mean yes there's paintball there's it's a knockout style things some of it's gross out stuff um but after a particular year where something goes wrong they uh, don't get together for quite a few years it's been a few years since they've got together but they finally get back together for another body game buddy games and there's 150 thousand dollars put up for grabs uh, by Duhamel's character known as Bob, uh, the Bob Bobfather, uh, who since the last time they got together has actually struck it rich. Um, it's not very funny, the gross out humour doesn't really work. Uh, Olivia Munn is in it, as uh, Bob's girlfriend Tiffany, who has a brief Appearance at the beginning and then disappears for the film. And then comes back again at the end. It's a sad waste of Olivia Munn. But the gross-out stuff doesn't work. There's, there's, we don't get really any character development. Um, the gags often fall flat. It's just a not funny film. It's, um, yeah, one to avoid and easily a uh, candidate for one of the worst films of the year. Uh, Tom, I know you haven't seen it. Don't waste your time. So,
1: yeah, I don't. I don't think I'll be seeing it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps things up for this week. So have yourselves a merry, merry Christmas, and and we'll be back next week before the new year to uh, to tell you a few more films to uh, see if uh, if they take your fancy. So uh, thank you, Tom.
1: Yes, Merry Christmas, everyone,
0: and catch you next week.